Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and it's a very exciting podcast today because we are back recording in person in the same room. I'm sitting next to Sue Grimmett and Peter Cat back in Peter's office. Sue, it is great to be back in person, isn't it, for the yeah, podcast? Yeah, that's right. Zoom's good. The, the mm. guest list is good on Zoom, but it's yes. really wonderful to have people in three dimensions. Absolutely. And Peter, thank you for having us back here. You've been well? It's my delight. And yes, I'm fine. Thank you. Lovely, lovely. Well, today's guest, as we are back in person, is Dr. Janice McRandall, a feminist theologian with published works such as Christian Doctrine and the Grammar of Difference and Sarah Coakley and the Future of Systematic Theology. One of our current projects is The Cooperative, an initiative creating space for open dialogue among any and all members of the public for the public good. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Janice. Thanks, Tom. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here and to be three-dimensional. Yes, it's <laughs> in the same room. Well, Janice, you are a guest we've been hoping to have on for a conversation just about from when the podcast started. I think your name came up on the first coffee catch-up so it's very thrilling to, to be sitting here with you today oh thanks i hope i don't disappoint <laughs> <laughs> hopefully look well uh today we are going to be exploring a conversation um covering a lot of really important territory that is directly related to the everyday lived experience of everyone listening to this religious not religious kind of irrelevant in to an extent in this uh, we're going to be talking about relationships family makeups gender and the many unhealthy and damaging norms that many if not most of us uh, are living in day-to-day, perhaps without awareness of it. Uh, I, I, as a starting point, I, I will mention that today's podcast was sparked, I think initially, Janice, by a Facebook post you made recently about the misogyny that is still prevalent in our culturally dominant ideas of uh, heterosexual relationships and family units and how these norms have to be actively challenged and eradicated, I suppose, um, for feminism to have actual genuine relevance in the way we are living in that post, you wrote a particular phrase, um, you, which we're going to use as, I guess, the, the key uh, point of this this podcast. You wrote that there has to be feminism in the home or no feminism at all. And you follow that up with writing, the domestic is the political. And so that's the title going up with this one. That's what we want to discuss, the idea that the domestic is the political. So as a starting point, Janice, can you just explore that idea um, in a little more depth? Yeah, I guess I'm trying to completely break open the idea of public or political life, which is often seen as that which happens outside of the home. Um, So the whole idea of the polis or the public life that people enter into politically was for an exclusive small group of men, if you go back to Greek philosophy. So slave-owning men are the people that could enter into the polis. And what happened at home was separate to our conversations about politics and good life and good community. And I'm trying to disrupt that entirely mm. and say that if you want to think about the politics of, of a good life or, or justice or fairness, then it absolutely starts and begins in the home. And in fact, you see in many ways a lack of progress in confronting many of these issues when you turn to the traditional family home, which many of us still live in. Well, it's an interesting point you made. We were just fortunate enough to share lunch together before we recorded today. And you mentioned that you, you have known many, uh, I guess, liberal thinkers or writers who, you know, maybe you're even reading a lot of feminism or even writing feminist theory um, or contributing to that, that area of academia. And then you look at their actual home lives and they're still living lives that that hasn't really touched at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, my training's in systematic theology. It's still a very male-dominated fi- field. And I would say not so much in Australia where 
theological training tends to happen much later in life. But 90, 95% of my colleagues overseas are men whose wives supported them through graduate school and went on <laughs> to do their PhD. And then the the wives had the children and it's like everything about that that norm um, is maintained through the traditional 50 family trajectory and then they go often to write edgy feminist theological reflections um, there's some you know there's some breakdown here why isn't your critical theory influencing your home life mm. um, why aren't some of those norms being upended I mean I do want to caution to say that you know, one of the central aims of feminism is for women to have their own complete agency and desire. So if some women may very much want this, but whenever something is so dominated with women's limited access to what we call the public world, professional life, then we should be suspicious. Mm. So, so why, you meant, you asked the question there, why is it that people who are engaging with a lot of this thought, a lot of this theory, haven't brought it into their home lives, haven't actually let it challenge their own um, family units. Why do you think that is? I mean, one of the observations I would make is we still maintain this demarcation between public and private, between the domestic and civil lives. So a lot of the critical conversations we have about politics and civil life and how to organise our communities keep a very firm boundary with what happens in our private and home lives. Mm. So by keeping that line, that demarcation in place, we've not brought any of our critical thinking into the home. It's a fascinating point. I know, Sue, this ties into a a few areas we've discussed on the podcast before and um, the idea of the Australian dream of having the home and, you know, no one really knows what's happening behind that front door, Um, but we all put on our public faces outside of it. It's fair to say the idea that the domestic is the political, it's it's almost one of the key frameworks of of your vocational work. Would that that be fair to say, do you think? Oh, look, I I think there is. I think when we're talking about the privatised world of the family, we know that we're sitting here, um, and we've talked on the podcast before about um, what... Uh, how, what a risk that is for domestic violence. Mm. Um, so we know that it has that impact. But just what Janice is saying now about saying that there's, we're not actually letting our critical thinking enter that space and the idea of marriage being a public institution, despite the fact that we're you know, in churches and we're used to seeing marriage, a wedding as a public event, you know, we somehow slip into the idea that then it suddenly slips away into a private realm that's untouchable by um, our thinking even. When it comes to the way we might, what we think is fair in the workspace, just disappears entirely in the home space. And yet, and, and I think it is at the heart of the church and what we're doing because we're actually um, trying to bring a holistic vision of, of people so that they are not a separate person when they're at home mm. and when they go to work, that how does our faith inform every part of our lives? Yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's the question. How does our faith actually inform every part of our lived experience? Um, you know, which is something we, we cover a lot. And I know, Peter, you did say uh, when we were talking about this beforehand that one of the key things to be mindful of from the outset as kind of a framing point of the conversation is the ways in which humans tend to be blind to the underbelly or shadow of that which we have normalised, which makes this stuff really hard to challenge because it's not as if you get to look at it with fresh eyes. Everyone looks at their own relationships or their own families with fresh eyes every day and gets to see what could be healthy and what, what isn't healthy. Because it is just considered the normal way of being, it sort of all gets hidden. How do you? How do people? Firstly, how do people then come to to see the truth? And secondly, why why is it so important they do? 
Um, well, we're really good at hindsight. And so you know, we, we've looked back at the 1950s now and said there was something wrong in the 1950s that women needed to be drugged every afternoon to get through the day. Um, but we, in our own time, we do tend to just normalise what we're living through, particularly if it isn't particularly disruptive. So, you know, if, if there's violence in the home, that starts to send some triggers to some people, or, although there are communities where it's so normalised, even that um, doesn't disturb as many people as it should. And you, you, as we see in in the reporting, um, you know, we should be far more troubled about the number of women who are being murdered by their intimate partners than we are. I mean, mm. we really should be. You know, it's, uh, one guy gets bitten by a shark and suddenly the government wants to re remove every shark from the ocean and yet another woman gets killed by her intimate partner and there's sort of a moment of angst and then we moved on. So it's, the, the thing I think we just need to be aware of is, is that the faith invites us to reflect on our experience and to reflect with critical eyes because we're always supposed to be open to what is emerging and what needs transforming rather than just normalizing what is mm. and it's really hard for us to do that in all sorts of uh, situations simply because we have got used to the way things are um i think one of the things that helps me is i don't watch much television and when i do watch television i get absolutely disturbed by things like ads for washing powder because you know, Every ad for washing powder has a woman doing the washing, except for one I saw recently where there was a gay man doing the washing because <laughs> he was actually in a gay partnership. So the, the washing powder people are now thinking, we've got to sell, how to sell um, washing powder to the gay people, but they're not selling it to heterosexual men. And that, for me, that just says there's still something really fundamentally wrong with what's, what's going on in the average house because that's who they're you know advertising advertising I think is one of the best ways to work out what we've normalized and yeah. see most people wouldn't notice that about ads and I probably wouldn't either except for I just watch TV so rarely that ads for me are fascinating mm. and I start watching them for what they're telling me about what's going on in our life but you know for so many people their, their home upbringing was normal so they've normalised it and they didn't notice their absent father and they didn't notice that dad controlled everywhere where they went and you know, everyone just sort of fitted in because that's the way it was and it takes a long time before you realise that actually no one in the family had agency except for dad and then you've got to confront that as actually something that's not good and you've got to actually begin to process what it means not to operate in that way. There's a whole lot of work to be done, but we can only do that if we begin to be honest with ourselves and, and listen to narratives and the way other people find life. I know uh, that there's probably a general sentiment, particularly amongst people who might consider themselves liberal or progressive, which I imagine probably is a, a significant portion of this podcast listenership just through the guests we have been fortunate enough to have on. 
Um, obviously, we're not trying to be dualistic about it, but I know that people who would identify in that area would probably think that they've sorted a lot of this stuff out. It's a trap I know that you can easily fall into that we've, you know, oh, yeah, but we've solved sexism, we've, you know, to think, mm-hmm. well, no, 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 we're, we're all aware now. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be okay in a workplace with things that are clearly sexist anymore. We're all about trying to find ways for equal representation. We've kind of, it's almost like people look at things like gender roles and sexism and think, well, we've solved those and we're, we're moving on to climate, maybe some other stuff mm. now. Um, but but it, does it feel to you, Janice, is it fair to say that um, you, really we haven't gotten into the really nitty gritty of, of solving and transforming the way that that's playing out in our lives yet? Well, I think the data would tell us we're actually going backwards. <laughs> so those public those forms of public social life that we think we've addressed are going backwards. There's less women in leadership, in boardrooms and things like that. Um, And that's a terrible metric, by the way, but I'm just Mm. saying those things that we were measuring are going backwards. We know that women are still doing more housework than men, even though they're working the same hours. Um, Somewhere between 90 and 95% of the world's Earth's land is still owned by men. So we actually know in the public realm we're going backwards. And I guess part of what I'm suggesting is because we never, ever took that critique all the way, Mm. not only have we not solved it, but we're actually seeing a regression. And, you know, if I was to bring that into the church or the the theological life, I've been teaching theology for over a decade and many, again, if you were to put it on, along those lines, you know, in not in clearly not in conservative theological colleges. They don't tend to hire feminist theologians. Um, and even then, most of my students, I would say 90% of the time, all of the footnotes were white male authors. 90% of, including all the women that were set feminists, are only, you know, we're only consuming white men. We haven't really changed most of our tradition. So we thought we'll just add women to these spaces and the whole of society would change. Well, actually, very little change. We just trained women to fit into that sociality mm. where we consume and think through the lens of the same dominant normed authors and ideas. I guess it's an interesting, very tricky sort of thing to think about how we almost got numbed into. Um, numbed into not addressing the problem by consciously or intellectually, logically thinking, oh, yes, we're aware of these things now, or many of us are aware of these things now, which almost gave us a sense that we'll do a couple of changes rather than actually looking at the very heart, the systemic heart Mm. of the thing and thinking, no, 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 this wasn't about putting a quota in for, you know, feminine representation in parliament or anything Mm. like that. This was actually about going to the very core of how we live together. Mm. Um, So as I guess as a feminist theologian, where along the line did we drop the ball? Where, where culturally, societally, where did we not go far enough with this criticism? I mean, I guess there's lots of theories. A dominant theory is there was after the 60s and 70s, second wave civil rights, feminist movements, there was a severe backlash. And the right really organised to, um, so in terms of feminism, to really give feminism a bad name. So I was born in 1980. I grew up largely in the 90s, and nobody—I didn't want to call myself. Nobody I knew wanted to call ourselves a feminist. This was angry, terrible, you know, women from the 70s that, yeah, sure, I want to be able to get a job, but I don't want to be like them. So there was very much a backlash against feminist movements, and then. Um, I think on the more left progressive side of things, we just 
we fell into that lull of thinking we'd accomplish something and also having this new mobilised right to look at smugly and say, well, we're not like, look how, you know, we're the Pharisees saying, look at them over, thank God I'm not like, they don't even allow women in ministry. Meanwhile, you know, progressive Christianity is marked by a worship of old white edgy men Mm. it's just you know the structure stayed exactly the same you go to a progressive christianity conference and i can tell you who you know i like richard raw too i like dominic (laughs) crossan but so we didn't we didn't follow through on the structural analysis we we succumbed to the backlash we found ourselves a new opposition that we could look at smugly and um you know, we stopped being influenced by this kind of critical thinking. I don't, you know, many people I know say they're feminists, say they care about racism, but they don't read any feminist theory. Mm. They don't read any critical race theory. Um, They get that from memes that they share on the internet. Yeah, and and I think, you know, we have to acknowledge on this podcast even the the, uh, regularity, and we we talk about this a bit, of which our guests are white men, you know, and and, and it's something that we'll often feel after we've looked at a series of podcasts, oh, without even thinking, we just had six white men as guests in a row, and they were all you know, brilliant thinkers who contributed something really brilliant. So it's not a knock on on any of them individually, but it is just the way that you can easily find yourself reverting back into the norms that are culturally set for you. And so I suppose, you know, when you think about that, and if people are listening to this and throughout this conversation start to to notice and realise even in their own lives, um, ways in which some of these toxic norms are still very relevant and prevalent that they kind of weren't, weren't awake to, how do you not feel, I don't know whether it's guilt or shame or, you know, because it's very easy to think, oh, I am, I'm part of the problem. I should feel guilty because I haven't been addressing this. And often that te- sends, uh, tends to shut people down then and or they can just get defensive. How do you look at this problem squarely in the eye, see the underbelly of it that we've been ignoring and actually change mm. as a result? I mean, we were talking about this a bit earlier and I think um, – you know, I, I think on one level confrontation and a reckoning is important, but something productive to come out of that requires trusting meaningful relationships and where we can open space to be vulnerable about the ways in which we've um, failed perhaps our own intentions or the ways in which we have given ourselves over to norms that don't feel empowering for us or the ways in which there's all sorts of ambivalences around that. So it's confusing. Maybe I do want – actually – Yes, I'm a feminist, but I don't want to take the rubbish out. So how, how do we have, you know, trusting I – mean, that's a real softball one – but how do we yeah. have trusting, vulnerable conversations where we can explore that and be accountable to that and move towards something different, but it's not shaming, it's not guilt-provoking? Because you're right, that just shuts us down. It just represses us back into doing very little about anything. Mm. And I think they need those trusting, vulnerable relationships if you're actually going to explore what the real issues are. We, we get stuck in the way of thinking of who's taking the rubbish out, who's packing the dishwasher at night, that kind of thing. But then there's all this, um, a, a, when we think of it in a tick-the-box style, I'll make sure I do that, we're not actually listening and tuning in to whatever the dynamic is in the context of that mm. particular family to know what's the load and what's the burden yeah. there. How are we um, not sharing? How are we not being equal? How is one party being prevented from being themselves in that situation? And I know a lot of people have written a fair bit about the cognitive load in a family, um, you know, who actually keeps the, the finances being managed, who does the organisation, who who remembers it's Arnie Jones' birthday and, and mm. follows up with that for everyone, you know, who's following up the school and making sure that flip and free dress day happens, you know. Mm. Um, 
those kind of things, when you only think of it in terms of, hey, but I took the rubbish out last night, then you lose the actual way it's playing out on a moment-by-moment basis that might be really oppressive or demeaning or diminishing to one party. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of that macro stuff, you know. I refuse to be responsible for my partner's relatives' birthdays. <laughs> but, you you know, you enter into a heterosexual marriage and suddenly people are emailing you as the wife to organise, shall we have dinner? I don't know, could you, do you want to organise that with my husband? He's also quite capable of making diary appointments and planning a meal. So there's that macro level stuff that exhausts women, that leads women being deeply unhappy, but there's no, dis- how do, we don't, we're not often sure, why am I so unhappy? There's no discursive space for us to talk about those things. And I suppose, you know, if there's people listening thinking, oh, no, I'm not really sure where how these norms are evident. It's so easy to just point out a few really obvious ways in which we have continued, continued to normalise these, I guess, these gender roles or these this relationship. Mm. You look at a marriage, for instance, how often still the, the vast majority is the woman takes the man's surname, the woman gets walked down the aisle by her father and, mm-hmm. you know, the tradition of ha- being handed over. A lot of these systemic things that, that kind of in, came out of this system are still absolutely the way things are done today. Are you surprised, maybe, Janice, are you surprised that more people aren't looking at that going, that's a bit weird we still do those things? Well, I mean, on one level I'm not because I think one of the things we still haven't confronted in our personal lives is giving each other space. And this is for men, women, regardless any of any or any gender or any sexuality, is cultivating space where we can courageously and vulnerably ask, what do I want? And so, so we follow these norms and these traditions and these rites of passage often with ever – and that's a really confronting question, right? Like I can say that easily but asking ourselves what do I want? What do I want in terms of I'm getting married? What are the tra- what do these traditions mean? Where do they come from? How do I want to participate in them? What do I want in terms of how our familial life is set up? What kind of home we live in? Do I want children? Mm. Many women have never – or men – been – told that they could actually ask that question it was just the norm what what do i want sexually Mm. and this for many i talk to so many women that will say i've never there's never been a moment where i thought about that question it's too scary it's too confronting because you know the dominant model of sex between heterosexual couples is that the the penetrative sex in the vagina that leads to the man ejaculating and it's over so you know women haven't been normed into having these questions about what do i want so i think that's a bigger broader conversation but it will break if we if we give ourselves to that and to those vulnerable spaces, it starts to break down a lot of those gender norms because for the very first time, we're saying, well, do I want do, do I want that thing? Is that something I want to participate in? Do, actually, I want to be childless. I definitely want to be childless. What happens when we give women to permission to ask those questions and then to live into those answers? Yeah, and, and I suppose the path of least resistance is always just to cave back into whatever the norms are. So that's why, you know, maybe maybe people have allowed themselves a brief chance to ask that question, but then there's pressure from others of, oh, well, your dad will be upset if he doesn't get to walk you down the aisle. Yeah. Or, you know, things yeah. like that. And, and the path of least resistance, I imagine there's probably a lot of, of women, I don't want to speak for women, but I imagine who have gone, oh, look, the, the, the least resistance here is just to, mm. to, to cave. Is that a fair thing to say, Sue? 
Oh, yeah, and I think that also taps into um, a long history of women feeling responsible for men's well-being, mm. um, their care of men, and we've just got to do this because um, that's what the women w- women in the home do. They make sure that the men are doing okay and you kind of ease over and there's this little sneaky sacrifice thing that's, that's in there from Christian faith mm. that also plays out in that. And it ignores the fact that truly loving action and a truly loving relationship is going to be one where we are, where there is that dialogue yeah. on these things, and where you might actually call someone into something better mm. that they you, that you don't just ease over because dad, you know, wants to walk me down the aisle. Mm. You actually might have a talk to your father about who he is in your life, what he means to you, what getting married means, and how that interplay between the family of origin and the new family, what that looks like, mm. and how might we represent that in a service. You know, I, I think there's something better. We settle, settle so often for what's less because it's easier and we've been enculturated to think that that's the loving or the sacrificial thing to do and it actually is doing harm. Well, and I suppose the, the point that, that you made earlier, Janice, about how many women are reporting that they are unhappy, mm. um, you know, in marriages, that, that is an interesting thing that, you know, you, you might think it's the path of least resistance, but these things never go without taking their toll. And I guess I guess the proof is there in the pudding that if you do just continually play in that system, well, I don't want to. I'll just take the path of least resistance, give mm. into that norm. It's that thing you always say, Sue, that life will always out. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to push this thing away. You're not going to be able to just paper over the cracks. That desire in you for life is always going to find its way out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the sad thing though is that often takes, and you were speaking from experience, takes a very long time before it kicks in, before I notice and, and it's, you know, often my subconscious gives me a kick in dreams and things like that. Mm. But I, I think there's, um, we, we can be ignoring of, of the self for so long and all it does, the longer it goes on, the more damage it does to everyone. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit um, about role typecasting here in terms of gender roles because I know that that, that is something that comes up a lot. It's almost maybe the a, a sense of a modern uh, way of trying to talk down actual equality by saying that, yes, men and women are equal, but they're different. We're not the same. They have mm. different strengths, different weaknesses, complementary roles to each other, but they are different. This came up a lot in Australia in the same-sex marriage plebiscite that we had a few years ago where there was a strong uh, message that came out from a bunch of people that sounded like they were speaking generously and compassionately and lovingly, but saying a child needs a mother and a father because there's things a mother can do and Mm. things a father can do, and they can't do either. And in fact, this has always been put out as a loving perspective. It's a really loving perspective to say that. But, But how is that actually that position not loving and actually continually embedding the same problems we're talking about? I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that it's nearly always false. There's n- pretty much no um, stereotype or norm that you can think of in terms of men or women or masculinity or femininity that hasn't existed throughout history and in many different cultures. So, you know, whatever it is you're thinking that um, men are like this and women are like nurturers, women are nurturers, you'll find very different expressions of that. So, there, you know, these are clearly socially constructed ways of being men and women and yeah. so that means it gives us this creative if we could just own up to that it gives us this creative space to renegotiate how we want to perform ourselves right mm. so modern both gender theory queer theory and in race theory you'll find this is this sense that like identity is a kind of performance a way
way to perform, a way of being in the world, but it's a very fluid, ambivalent space that gives itself over to lots of um, creative new beginnings. Mm. And so, so that means that there's no right or wrong way. It's not bad for a woman to wear pink. Good luck. Go go for it if that's, if that's how you want to negotiate your performance of femininity today. But it's also not bad for a man to do that. Mm. And that can also happen in conflicting and interesting creative ways. Yeah, and I, I suppose there's that sense as well um, – where people might be articulating when they say a, a child needs a mother and a father, you know, that provide different strengths. They might be articulating that actually the two parents in this particular instance were very different people and both of their different uniqueness brought something good to this. But that uniqueness wasn't because of their genders. It wasn't necessarily defined by anything in particular. It was just saying different perspectives will bring something different. But I guess ultimately, Peter, it is just a way of continually embedding the same injustice, isn't it? Well, it, and it's also incredibly reductionist and it, it falls for the trick that somehow a child is only brought up by the people who are in the same household, whether it's a single mum, a single dad, two people. Um, you know, that, that is a dysfunctional way to bring up a child anyway. Mm. I mean, children, children flourish when they're brought up by a village. And you know, I, I just look at the, you know, one of the great things about my life I think is that I grew up in a village and my kids grew up in villages that were called church communities um, and they were nurtured by an incredible number of adults who and they were men and women of, of very diverse character so there were there were blokey men who were nothing like me so my kids actually saw what a blokey man looked like <laughs> you know um, there were there were gay people, there were single people, old people, young people, there were dysfunctional people, there were people who were on the edge of society and the kids had all of those as adults in their life. And I think it's actually contributed to who they are and they were brought up by that village. And the idea that you have to have stereotype person A plus stereotype person B for the kid to be brought up well, I think is just completely toxic. I mean, it also seems like wildly utopian. Oh, like yeah. only somebody who's Impossibly. never brought up kids yes. would say that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and and, and it, it, it puts incredible burden on everybody. And it also means that kids just don't get an experience of the diversity of humanity it, and it, it introduces all sorts of elements of control reducing the family reducing re reducing people to simple gender roles stereotypes reducing families to two or three or four people living in the same space creates all sorts of power dynamics like you know um giving parents exclusive choice over whether their kids get vaccinated when that's actually a societal conversation that needs to happen. Um, I fully understand why people need to exercise conscience and stuff like that, but the idea that, that a parent is actually given, because of this wall that's driven, that's drawn, a parent can actually make a decision on behalf of a child that is bad for the child. 
for I, the I child. Don't, I don't think this is unrelated either. To no, the, no. It, I mean, it belongs to the same sort of hierarchies of domination. Yeah, absolutely. The husband dominates the wife yeah, yeah, and the parents yeah. dominate the children. That's so, right. Yeah, exactly. Mm, right? Exactly. And, and it's not healthy... It's not healthy. ...to imagine that your job as a parent is to tell your children what to think... Yeah. ...or tell them how to experience masculinity yeah, or femininity. Yeah, right. Your job is, is to raise them up so that they can one day have the agency and yeah, courage to absolutely. say, what do I want? That's right. Yeah, and and yeah. that they can actually engage with life and flourish. Because mm. I think one of the other things we've done through limiting people's experience of what it is to be an adult and is we just don't equip people for adulthood. And then we end up with people who just don't cope. Mm. And they, they have this idea that they've got to achieve these norms and they've got to reproduce the norms and then so everyone feels like a failure mm-hmm. and the shiny family is always held up as the thing we all fail to attain to. It is, it is winding the whole project of humanity down. It's we put incredible pressure on families. Uh, you know, <coughs> the families to be the performance parent and to keep up the appearances of, of the perfect family is an incredible amount of pressure. And when, when you get, you know, dialogues around needing, you know, option A, dad, you know, and, and B, mum, and, and they are living into their stereotypes and that's the perfect ideal family, you know, what actually is going... And, and comparing that to a single parent family, for instance, you know, actually, newsflash, it's good to have help with kids. Mm. You know, it's not about whether they're mum or dad. Mm. Yeah, two people is better than one, but a village is better than two. Mm. And, you know, the, this, this, it, it seems so moronic that we would be saying, oh, you know, having mum and dad is better than... You know, well, yes, kids need help. Mm. They need more people involved. But it, we actually are, by setting up our families in isolated spheres, where quite often at least one either... Generally, dad, but quite often one party is not fully functioning and being involved and engaged in the parenting then they we are isolating them away and our children are suffering from this model of the family that we're actually trying to maintain that isn't true for anyone if i if i could just pick up on this if you don't mind i'll go back to this idea of also how we model set up the family and how it's structured in relation to what we're talking about and you've already um pointed to this so is one of the ways we've set up the nuclear family and predominantly the heterosexual couple is that the woman is responsible for the nurture and care of the man's psychological well-being. So men don't tell other men their problems and they won't go and see a therapist and they won't go and see a counsellor and the woman has to do all the labour of looking after his emotional pain, his grief, his ego, anticipating at any time what's going to make him happy, what's going to make him sad. And that's a part of this you know this whole dynamic in which the domestic is this model of great sexism where neither party is really learning to live fully or flourish Mm. and the woman's being made responsible uh for all this this work so and you that's very consistent i mean if you have an ominous conversation with so many women who are in heterosexual relationships that's a very consistent theme that they've been they're the one that's responsible to manage his emotional world because there's nothing out in the public world that will help men do that and that's why patriarchy is bad news for everyone yeah yeah <laughs> and i guess that's the point in this is that we're talking about deeply toxic systemic stuff so you know, people who, who find themselves in these sort of nuclear family setups where things aren't working for anyone mm-hmm. in this particular way, no one, very rarely has anyone made an autonomous decision to go into that. That is like a, a systemic thing that just sort of 
plays itself out again and again and again. And the liberation from it is good news for everyone in the family. That's because we don't encourage people to talk about their lived experience. There are a whole lot of things where we've, we've said these, are, these norms are so tight that you don't have to talk about them. Mm. So you just fall into uh, this is the way a family operates. And so you don't, you know, men aren't asked, do you like behaving in this way? Because there's no, and as Jonah said, there's no, there's no space for them to have the conversation anyway. Um, you know, it'd be great if uh, pre-marriage counselling actually looked at that, you know, really went the deep dive stuff. It would take longer than most people want to give over to this sort of stuff. But to actually just have the conversation mm. about, so what, what is it that, you know, I like you and you like me, so we're going to sort of set up together. What are we? Get, what is it going to look like to actually have the conversation? Because mm. we have all this stuff that is so tightly normalised, you just sort of move into it without question. Yeah, and half asleep. Well, yeah. well, because we we don't even say it's worth talking about, or it can be talked about, mm. because it is the way things. It's it's this sort of setting concrete stuff that we do to each other all the time. Of this is. These are the way life. These are the way. This is the way life plays out. So you just slot into the program and you go along with this. You, you jump into the stream, and the stream sweeps you along, and you don't even talk about mm. anything. And so, and you know, and some couples get incredible surprises when they're five years in, and one of them says, "Oh, so now it's time for us to have the baby," and the other one says, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the, the assumption was, you know, get the house, mortgage, you know, save for the mortgage, da, 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 now it's time for the kid. You mean you've got like five years into your marriage, probably 10 years into your relationship, and you've actually never actually had the conversation about whether you're going to have kids or not? Mm. But that's, I mean, that's I mean, what we, you know, in terms of pastoral conversations, that's the stuff we hear all the time. People have got that far into a relationship and one of them rings up and says, I need to have a talk. And it's because the assumptions that they've been operating on have not been, com- had been basic stuff like what's it going to look like, have not been addressed in a decade. Mm. And of course, our churches have, have actually reinforced all of this. You know, churches actually don't, we've, we've tended to um, say, these are the norms, this is the way, and just assume and you know, here's another news flash: just turning up with to church on Sunday with your kids is not enough to do the village. You know, <laughs> it actually isn't the support that you lo- that you need, um, and it doesn't surround the children with the kind of relationships that are going to be mm. life giving and um, and and support the couple too. You know, that it, it uh, we, we've assumed that there are these roles. You go home, you've got to maintain that, and there's a whole lot of shame attached to actually declaring life isn't working like this at home for me. Mm. You know, we don't have the happy family um, where we're sharing roles and where the kids are, are happy and we're doing school and we've got outside interests and, you know, all the things that we're meant to be, all the balls we're meant to be keeping in the air, there's a lot of shame. And when you come to church, it's just people aren't having those conversations mm. to be able to open up and say, my family is not working like this at the moment, you know, or has never but then we clinicalise it and try to fix it so that it does. Yes, that's so, right. Because that's the norm we've got to. Fit we've got to. We've got to get back to the norm. So, well, how do we? How do we have the conversation to make sure that everyone gets back to 
the project rather than yes because anything else is aberrant yeah i um i remember being at one of the major shopping centers in brisbane a few years ago now and they had this poster up they wanted to do a photo shoot a family photo shoot for you know to promote the shopping center as a family place and i was reading it and i remember laughing because it said the, the first sentence was we're looking for a normal everyday australian family <laughs> for our photo shoot we are hoping for and then it started to list quite clearly what they think a normal everyday <laughs> australian family was and it said a mum and dad who are in their late 30s, early 40s, maybe <laughs> mid-40s, who are happily married. Um, it's, there was weird stuff in there like dad's a bit taller than mum, oh, you know, yeah, things like course. that. Yeah, yeah. And then three kids, ideally two boys and a girl. One of the go- boys is really into sport. The other boy's really academic. The girl <laughs> loves to dancing. Honest, right? I yeah. mean, this is the, right. Yeah. Dad, mum can be educated, but dad's a bit more educated. Yeah, yes. Mum can have a good job, but dad's got a bit, bit of job. Everyone's able-bodied. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. And, and on top of They're that... They're all was, white. That's unspoken. Yeah, and all the kids were getting on great. Like yeah, if, yeah. kids who are each other's best friends and yeah. parents who just love be, spending a Sunday with the family. And yeah. there's all these things. And I remember looking at that thinking, well, I've never met that family. Yeah. But it feels like what everyone thinks every other family is. So everyone's at home in whatever their lived experience is thinking, I'm I'm guessing every other house in this neighbourhood is that family and we're the only I mean, ones who that are missing is out. The, uh, the, that is the family 99% of churches want too. Yeah, you yeah. You have any conversation with churches about growing. Yeah. Growing the fam. Oh, they're yeah, growing in families. You want to attract young families. Have you ever heard a church council talk about wanting to grow senior group the yeah. seniors the number of seniors that like mm. it's the promised land and it's the clergy person they want as well they generally yes. ideally want, a, want yeah. a man who's married with a few kids yeah that's the clergy because they'll bring the family in. Yes, that's <laughs> right. yeah yeah and i suppose it's really interesting when you think about the idolization of the nuclear family mm. in churches how what initially might seem a really lovely pleasant thing oh they're doing the kids message at the front now for all the kids and mm. well they get to go off and do the kids church thing and oh we can network with those parents and have a coffee with them it was stuff that maybe on your first sunday looks friendly and lovely and warm by maybe your 10th sunday becomes clear isn't what it seems and is in fact a benchmark that's oppressing you in a sense trying to make you fit something that you aren't yeah and that's that. That it is something you're hundred percent right. It is so maybe more embedded in churches than anywhere. Yeah, isn't it? I, and the church is wrapped up in. I mean, it's pretty. Com- I guess it's complicated, but certainly since the Reformation, there's been this um, growing idolization and worship of the nuclear family unit. Um, women have been understood as born to bear children, so there needs to be procreation happening in the family, and. Um, even in more recent days seems quite shocking but hearing among certain conservative fundamentalist Christians conversation of having many many children to try and address the um, decline of faith in certain areas so Mm. I mean the Muslims at their own game yeah exactly (laughs) I mean it feels shocking to start to hear this kind of thing I was born in Ireland in a Catholic family so my grandmother had 16 and the other grandmother had 12 children um, because you can that's what a woman's born to do and you can't practice contraception and so the church is wrapped up not in just uh, I wouldn't this is hardly simple there's complex runs deep in our theological ideas of turning the church in the language of turning the church into a family right which hadn't mm. always been a dominant metaphor um, the the bridegroom you know the heteronormative bridegroom metaphors we use uh, mother church 
all right? So the church has a complicated theological relationship to how we view the family in very practical ways that's had lasting impact on everybody. Yeah. Single, um, single people, especially single women, are often treated as an aberration in, in church communities. And many um, single women, often women who would, li- would like to remain single forever, it's by their choosing, tell me of awful experiences in the church. And sometimes when people become aware of that, what they do is then say, well, we'll start a singles group. That'll that'll yeah. fix it, you know. And instead <laughs> yeah. of this being like, actually, we are here together. These are all the different yeah. representations of the way of the way yeah. we're doing this human experience. Yeah. Why can't we do this together? Um, we're going to still sideline you off there because actually this is we, – we do think that's a bit aberrant. Yeah. So you can do that by yourself. Yeah. Or it's something – we'll cure it by creating singles club yes. where people can meet each other meet and get married. Yes. <laughs> we'll cure your problem. There, I remember in a sermon once hearing a pastor at a church I was going to say uh, something along the lines – I can't remember the, verba- the verbatim quote, but it was something along the lines of we hope to see – all the the single women here find the husband that's waiting for them and something like that as if that that is the successful story and mm. and then suddenly any woman who is not married is a failure of that model mm. and their life hasn't worked out and then you suddenly you can see the pity in the pastor's eyes when mm. he says oh no one again this year you know <laughs> as, as if as if that hasn't worked out and it's funny speaking of that exact same expectation in the church you mentioned um, the the idea of Christians populating, repopulating to spread the faith. And Peter, you made the comment that many of those Christians say about people of Islamic faith. I was in a Christian studies class at high school and we were shown a video, a propaganda video about mm. how Muslims are populating at a rapid spread to try to sp- spread Islam globally. That's what we were told. Mm. And then the Christian studies teacher, somewhat in a joking voice, but quite seriously said, so women in the room, you know your job. Right? And I was thinking, this is grade 11. Grade 11. Now, I'm sure many of those women just sort of thought this, this teacher's a little bit nuts. I'm not really going to listen to this. But you don't know the way that those sort of oh, tapes can just Little get girls in. are hearing this from... Now, like recently I was playing um, the game of life. Do you know this game? It's a mm. terrible game. It's really quite <laughs> evil. It's the model of neoliberal capitalism. Yes. Like that's what really they nice. and But oh well, here we are playing it and along the way you get a job, you get an education, you get a better paying job and then you can get a mortgage and buy houses and you can collect children and you know they're girls because they're pink and they're boys because they're blue. And, and my 10-year-old daughter has a major meltdown because she's not having enough children and this is her complete desire. Now, this is a child that lives with two parents that both practice academic feminism, Mm. who's, again, going back to anyone that thinks only the parents are influencing the children are completely cut off from reality. And so I think, well, here's this child who's hearing feminist discourse all the time and... It's unquestioned to her that her desire is already formed to grow up, get married, have children, to be heterosexual, to follow that path. And we're talking about that all the time. So there's Mm. unconscious material in the church, in the advertising, everywhere you go, forming you into a particular model of family life. And unless we're developing models of critical discourse... We don't have, we're not going to have any resistance to that. We're just going to have another generation falling into it unthinkingly. And it's forming into the same power patterns. And, of course, this is the power is the toxic thing underplaying all of this is that, you know, that as you're being formed by these 
by these forces, you're also being prepared to take on a certain role in the power hierarchy. Yeah. And uh, so many women continue, as, and, and young girls as they grow up will just fall into that submissive role and to just hold it mm-hmm. because that's, that's, the, that's the line that they've inculturated into and we need to constantly have a look at where, where is the power in this, what's playing out and, and, and be able to call out the damage that that's doing from, to our children from a mm. young age, yeah. And what is happening where this conversation started, the Facebook post and the link to research showing how unhappy married women are, is what is happening is in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even later, women are saying I'm unhappy and ending their marriages in increasing numbers. Mm. And so we're, this is where we get this rhetoric of the traditional family model is breaking down and and it is because women are at some point later in life saying this has led me to be very unhappy this is i don't want this instead of the reactionary right wing well we have to restore the traditional unit now's our opportunity to rethink to be creative okay well what might our models of family look like that aren't based on sexist norms that aren't completely ridiculous in the light of our ecological crisis that aren't you know that aren't that it would be more sustainable models of living together and you know it's a real opportunity for us to think creatively about that yeah it's a fascinating point i'm i'm thinking there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this and i know this is something we were talking about beforehand at lunch how many people will say they thought they were in a happy family or in a happy marriage um, and then actually as time goes on and they look back, they go, oh, actually, that was a bit weird. I don't know what that was about and I don't like that that was in there. And kind of they, they didn't pick up on it at the time, but the more time goes on and the more they're able to look back on things, they realise actually the truth of some things that were going on there that had just become normalised. So I think there's probably people listening to this who, as we discuss these norms, can see how they're playing out in their own families, their own marriages, their, you know, in their own domestic experience of whatever their life is, you know, it could be a married person, could be a single person listening, thinking, oh yeah, the, my, mm. my, the church I go to has been pitying me for being single and I'm really happy being single mm. and I don't want to be pitied anymore. Mm. I'd rather be celebrated for that if possible. There is this, this sense where people are probably listening to this and feeling that sense of challenge. So what do you, if the domestic is the political, what is the, the, the call, the, the, the ask that question what do i want how do we live that out how do we actually in the if our systems are so normalized and everyone else is deeply caught up Mm. in how normalized that is what can we do individually and collectively to to kind of challenge that um the first thing i would say is uh, hold open that space don't shut down sometimes when we hear things reflected back to us we'll get defensive or we'll just get we want to repress it or we want to run from it um if if we, if and when we're confronted about some of our deep intimacies and our own unhappiness, to hold open that space, keep it open, and find trusting, vulnerable ways to start to explore that. And some of the ways we can explore that is um, we were talking before about um, finding whether it's for women or men or mixed gendered groups or all gendered groups. But certainly in the second wave of feminism, there was a strong impetus on consciousness raising groups where women could get together and actually start to analyse and dissect, dissect um, the structural elements of, the, of not only the public in society but the family life 
and and how they oppressed them or how they didn't open up these questions of what do I want. So finding groups of, of safe spaces where this can be explored. And I really encourage, always encourage men to start doing this, right? Men need to start analysing, critiquing masculinity to be a part of the solution here. It's not women aren't going to solve this. Men hold the power. So they have to be a... a a big part of them analysing themselves and their own participation in this and I think men groups are a big part of that. The other is just, and this seems so shockingly simple, but I encounter this every day of the week, start reading the actual literature. So if you care about this, read some feminist current, not from the 60s or 70s, read feminist literature that's engaging with the current context today. Um, Start looking at some of the research that that shows you the data of of how these things play out in the home. Maybe get involved in some formal learning around that. So, um, and that can be tricky in the church. Sadly, there's only one theological college in all of Australia that runs a feminist theology class. So again, you thought we solved things in the 60s and 70s. Mm. There is only, and that's a new class. So there's a period there for some years where there's no theological. So that can be tricky in in a theological, but maybe get involved in some education. And then... If you need even more help, you know, in the church, that could be something that happens with a a pastor or a priest, somebody in ministry. But engaging trusted people to help you figure out what steps come next, what things need to change in your life. So um, sometimes they are big, scary things. Sometimes they're big, scary things that we need to change in our family, in our home, in the way we live um, domestically and you can't no one can do that alone that's about journeying together and I suppose the, the the good news the hope is that it can be a deeply liberating thing in the sense that a lot of people I imagine who get into unhappy marriages 20 30 years in you know often the dynamic was never going to work from the start but I imagine there's also a bunch of encounters where you think oh this person isn't right for me so I am I don't want to be with them anymore but actually it, it's the system it's the it's the norm that was that sort of soured the whole love that was originally there in a sense so there's something liberating and and good news about this too isn't there yeah I think again it's about holding open that space and I think that's with any relationship whether it's an intimate partner or a friendship Mm. relationship recognizing that the other person is not you that they're truly other that they're different that's the lifelong work of intimacy whatever on whatever level that that happens so um the inclination can be to run to shut down to end that relationship and sometimes for many women that's a really positive Mm. liberating message leave him either (laughs) it's unsafe or you're just so deeply unhappy leave him is a great message but lots of the times these are material that you know wherever you go there you are (laughs) you still have to find ways to work through this and many relationships could just be so much more empowering and many family Um, forms of family where children are could be so much more liberating for everyone if we jumped in the deep end on some of these issues yeah i love that and i'm I'm thinking peter about how you said it all starts with genuinely good intentions most of the time of two people who like each other love each other Mm. and want to set up their lives together and then one step after another of, of these norms can kind of tear the whole thing down what was this original um, love and connection can mm. be totally manipulated and twisted and poisoned. Poison's probably the word for it by the, the cultural norms. So there is, it is liberating good news to think you can set yourselves up in this relationship and in this world together in a totally different way. And if we invited people to be more reflective, full stop. Mm. You know, it, it, there's a lot of 
our, our culture is always rushing to the next thing, whereas spirituality invites us to continually reflect. And if we develop reflective habits in terms of examining our life on a daily basis so that we actually learnt, so our life would teach us stuff, and we were actually able to do that in our relationships and actually have open conversation about rather than... You know, unfortunately, because we don't have the practice, what tends to happen is things don't get... Don't, they don't um, get out of the box until things come to a head, in inverted commas. Mm. So you know, people are often surprised when a whole lot of issues just sort of all come out at once and then you end up with huge arguments of about stuff that no one or the other party wasn't particularly aware of and then you know then you end up with a, a well you do this and I do blah, 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 you know it turns into absolute chaos if we had developed encouraged people to develop reflective practice and communication amazing that we should be advocating for communication in relationships if people could you know developed really basic communication like when you do this I feel on or I feel or yeah just basic stuff mm. which is really being honest about our lived experience and conveying our lived experience to others and not feeling shamed or guilt or clinicalized because we're having a particular reaction to something um, life would be so much better I mean that's church communities um, the whole society would be much better if people actually learnt to have these dialogical processes all the time instead of waiting for things to get toxic and then trying. You know, if, you, if you've got 25 years of sadness in a relationship and you try to deal with it after 25 years, you've got I mean, the, the chances of doing that <laughs> are pretty minimal, really. But if you've had 25 years of actually talking to each other, then each wrinkle is going to be just a wrinkle rather than a juggernaut of discontent. But mm. we, we don't encourage people to talk at that level about much and, and we don't have the safe places for people to do it. And you know, a lot of people's friends aren't really helpful in that area. You know, it's like, get over it. Um, yeah. well, I think we've talked before about grief, you know, the expectation that after 10 days you'll be over the death of your partner and you'll be back to normal and you'll be productive in your work mm. I, I i guess it's um these things are just so strongly cultural so i know we've told the i think it's the short story about the fish that this is water story before about two fish swimming along and an older fish swims the other way and says morning how's the water and one of the one of the other fish turns to its friend and says what's water the idea being that the most base realities of what we're living in sometimes are so dominantly everywhere that we aren't even aware of what they are we aren't even you know fish don't know they're swimming in water because they're just swimming they don't they don't stop to think what's this i'm swimming through and so i guess i'm aware and, and i mentioned you know how we are doing individually and collectively we have the conversation around the podcast we think about it in our own lives there is that element of of starting the reflective process can be liberating and so i want to ask you janice alongside your own work which which um you know obviously is out there for people as well you mentioned uh, thinkers, writers that people can engage with so that they can transform or bring this into their domestic life so that they can actually start reflecting on thinking about this and, and, and make a lived experience change in their domestic life. 
are there places that you would recommend if people came to you and said, where can I look into this? Are there writers? Are there places? Are there, what would you initially suggest to people? Is that, is that a question that's easy yeah, to answer? I'm, I think that a book that comes to mind is Sarah Ahmed, Living a Feminist Life. So she's definitely trying to um, think about what it means to live as a feminist every day, wherever you are, outside of academic or theoretical work. That's a really great book. Came out three or four years ago. That, I think that's a, um, a handy book here in Australia. I think Clementine Ford, as a popular writer around feminists, is very popular, mm. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, has been influential in the Australian scene. So she's written a book about Fight Like a Girl and an, also a book about masculinity. So um, two popular books in Australia that I think have proven very helpful. Um, the feminist theology class I mentioned is at Pilgrim Theological College in um, Melbourne. It's part of the University of Divinity, but they also have recently... Um, added a number of other feminist classes so they can be enrolled in online from anywhere in the world. In addition, that's a, their Pilgrim Theological College is also a, a key part of the Australian collaborators in feminist theology. So if you're coming at it from a um, Christian faith perspective, theological perspective, um, that is the key group of feminist theologians in Australia putting out numerous publications, holding events, um, so you can find them on all your regular social media mm. um, and, you know, their YouTube channel and things like that. Yeah, lovely. Can I throw in one more because it's one I got from Janice. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed Bell Hooks mm. and I hadn't come across Bell Hooks before conversations with Janice. And I think one thing to raise in this conversation is that Bell Hooks um, traverses a lot of territory, but in the stuff that I've read from her, she's actually, I've read like all about love. She's actually talking about love and saying, you know, this is a serious topic. Well, we're, we're actually not exploring it. It's, it's seen as over sentimentalized or something, but this is actually what makes worth love like life worthwhile. Mm. And yet we, don't bring it into our academic literature and we don't like to be seen to be talking about love as to be seen to be mm. um, doing something that's soft and not really rigorous you know and yet she um, outlines all that the gender responses to love this idea that women need more love that men don't really need love like what what a cheat for men yeah. you know it's and, Ridiculous. and I, we, yeah. we actually need um, I, I love bell hooks for the way yeah. that she says this is what matters most to us in life this is actually what makes life mm. worth living love mm. in all its forms yeah. is worth having so yes these power conversations and what i've been alluding to through you know this conversation talking about power the only reason we want to talk about it is because mm. love is the ultimate of what we're actually mm. trying to achieve and you don't have it when power gets in the way yeah. and the power imbalance means that that there cannot be mutual love mm. yeah i know this podcast from the beginning through a whole bunch of conversations kind of what we're seeking to do is 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 articulate or explore the christian message of a flourishing life you know flourishing exactly as you are in this world growing into who you really are in this world and i guess when we talk about these sorts of things you know these cultural norms these um these ideas they're the sort of things that are keeping you from life from love and so that's i suppose that is the good news of this it's not about go and feel guilty about the relationship you're in or the family you're in don't feel like you've messed it all up or or feel ashamed but that it's that constant invitation, I suppose. Is that fair? That constant invitation into a different way of being. Absolutely. I think that's the last thing I'd want to have conveyed, that people should feel bad or um, or guilty yeah. that mm. they've, you know, enacted all these norms. Yep. I've been married twice. It's given me a lot of time to think, <laughs> yeah, I'm in a second marriage now and I promise you things were very different from the 
you know, I proposed to him to in the wedding ceremony onward. So, yeah, I think we can all that like structural oppressions, like things like patriarchy or, or racism, are not things we can avoid. That we could have thought ourselves out of at the very beginning. It's a lifelong journey of growing into consciousness, and that should be liberating, not guilt-inducing. Yeah, it's a lovely place to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Janice. It's uh, And when I do say end the conversation, obviously this is not one that just parks at this hour and a couple of minutes. This is a lifelong one to be lived out and continued and, and is one I'm sure we'll explore in numerous other forms as well. But thank you very much, Janice. It's been lovely to spend time talking. Thank you for having me. It's been so lovely to see you all. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the podcast shortly. <laughs>